Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. Of the Moon, Stars, Planets, and Flying Debris The seven years that I lived in Denver, before moving to the mountains, dulled my senses to the glory of the night sky. Light pollution guaranteed that I would only see the brightest stars. Under this umbrella of glare, the night sky seems dull. It needs some cleaning and polish to make it sparkle. In Denver, I could see major constellations, but the Milky Way, Andromeda, and even the Pleiades were difficult, if not impossible, to see on almost all nights. The move to 8240 was not only a move above the smog, it was a move to the stars. One clear night at 8240 is all it takes to stoke the fires of enthusiasm toward the cosmos around us. From here, one can see thousands upon thousands more stars than can be viewed from the city. The night sky sparkles. The sky here has depth, definition, and character. When I saw the stars again, I was amazed and given a healthy dose of curiosity. I could see things that were unfamiliar. What is that fuzzy spot in Orion's belt? Wow, where did that cluster of stars come from? The band of our galaxy really does look milky. How far is it to the nearest star? Is that a planet over there? But it's the moonlight that's the most striking. On a crystal clear, crisp winter night after a fresh snow, the night world is completely transformed by the moonlight. It's surreal, otherworldly. Down in Oklahoma, where I spent my youth, friends and I would go for hikes in the woods at night when the moon was full. It's really fun to see what one can actually see on such nights. We would hike for hours, but there was a missing element, snow. Snow takes the light from the moon and bounces it in all directions. The ground glows, the moon glows, and the perception of brightness is multiplied. With snow on every surface and moonlight reflecting in all directions, it becomes so bright that one can read a book. Even colors can be perceived. I first became enchanted by this moonlight my first year in Colorado. I lived in the city but spent every free moment in the mountains. A dear friend of mine named Leon thought it would be a neat test for us to do some winter camping. We did not have the proper camping gear nor experience, but we believed that we could get through the cold winter night on sheer will, if by no other means. I had to work until after 9 p.m., so it was well after 10 before we were actually driving out of the city. An hour and a half later, we parked the car, put on our packs, and hiked several miles into the wilderness. As soon as the headlights were off, we noticed that the moonlight was astounding. We could see for miles. The sky was clear, and the moon was so bright that it hurt the eyes to look directly at it. Sunlight is somewhat filtered as it bounces off the moon. The result is a silvery light that touches the earth in a new way. The landscape was transformed from the world to which we were accustomed to a new world. Had we teleported off the earth entirely? It certainly felt as though we had. I had never encountered our home planet like this before. I was hypnotized by this new environment. 
It was real, but I had to touch it to believe it. We hiked as if dreaming. Snow crunched under our feet, and only our rhythmic breathing reminded us of the presence of the other. Besides these noises, there was a hush. I remember straining my ears to hear a familiar sound. Nothing. The air smelled of frozen pine trees and ozone. The moisture in my nose would freeze with each inhalation and thaw as I exhaled. It was bitter cold. I wondered if the moonlight, as powerful as it was, could actually provide warmth like sunlight does on a cold day. It was hard to feel any heat in this silvery radiation. That, too, seemed strange. Cold light. Light is warm, but not this light. It was cold, even frozen. We hiked until well after two o'clock in the morning. I think we really did not want to stop. It felt as if we were floating. Our footfalls were softened by the snow, and all senses were keenly aware that this was a special experience. Immersion in this new reality was pleasant, but the cold threatening. I feared that stopping would decrease my metabolism and that I would be overtaken with fierce trembling. We finally did stop. We pitched a tent on the snow and crawled under piles of blankets with as many layers of clothing as we had. It was cold. We did shiver, but hypothermia did not set in. The moon set, and the darkness penetrated everything. I closed my eyes, almost afraid to sleep, but finally I did. It had been an amazing night, one that will never be forgotten. The moonlight at 8240 is often the same as it was that night over a decade ago. I find myself drawn to it. I bundle up in several warm layers and go outside to experience this other world. As the snow crunches or whooshes underfoot... And as the moisture in my nose freezes, I am teleported again. Sometimes I take the scriptures with me, and I literally read by the moonlight. At other times, I'm content to turn off all the lights in the house and to lie on the sofa looking out the window at the other world. The only light in the room comes from the fire in our stove, and the only sounds are those of wood popping in the flames. I can sit for hours lost and enchanted watching the shadows shifting in the moonlight as the earth spins under this lunar sky. The glorious moon and stars are not the only fascinating objects in the sky. The path followed by the sun across the daytime sky is the same path followed by the planets. This imaginary arc across the sky is called the ecliptic. The ecliptic runs across the portion of the sky that our deck faces. Since the planets each take different periods to orbit the sun, different planets show up from season to season in this window of the ecliptic. Since moving to 8240, we've watched Venus, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter crawl slowly across the night sky. My son was quite young when Jupiter had the leading role in the nightly drama. I told Caleb that bright spot was Jupiter, and then enjoyed amazing our friends by having Caleb point out our solar system's largest planet, on a dark night, we would actually see more than one of Jupiter's many moons. I don't know if we were seeing Io, Europa, Ganymede, or Castillo, but it's likely that the Jovian moons we viewed were among these Galilean satellites. To see moons other than our own fascinates me. Jupiter has more moons than our sun has planets, and it's fun to imagine these remote worlds. What would it be like to hover in Jupiter's gases and to see not only one full moon, but four, six, eight, or more. The imagination takes a speck of light in the night sky and creates experiences to thirst for. This most recent summer, Mars shed his red light on our deck. 
What an amazing world with mountains that dwarf our own and canyons that make the Grand Canyon seem small. Olympus Mons is a volcano three times the height of Everest. The Valles Marineris Canyon system is almost 2,500 miles long and is four miles deep in some places. Once again, a speck in the sky evokes wonderful imaginings. Sure, from our deck, this planet just looks like another distant star. But there's something about knowing that it's not a star that's rewarding. Someday humans may hike these Martian canyons. Perhaps my grandchildren will go there on vacation. Looking into the vastness of space from a high-altitude perch is an experience that many have never had. There is a clarity and a depth to the night sky up here. It's clear enough to see unexpected things. As we arrived home one evening, I noted some object traveling quickly across the star-strewn expanse above us. It was brilliant white and appeared to be a solid in front, and it was followed by a small cloud of debris that looked like gases. This was not a comet, as its jumbled tail went toward the sun. It was not a meteor, as it never entered the Earth's atmosphere to heat up and burn. It glowed because it reflected the light of the sun that had set an hour earlier. I dashed into the house to recover my binoculars. The object had traveled more than a third the distance of the night sky during the moment that I was in the house. Whatever it was, it was certainly moving fast. I watched it for another moment, and then it entered the shadow of the earth and vanished. What is the story behind this material hurling through space? It was big enough and moving fast enough that an impact with the earth may have been notable. I've never heard any announcements of near misses with an asteroid associated with that evening. Perhaps what I saw was a human-made satellite that had spewed out gases. Maybe it was an asteroid that was larger and farther from us than it appeared. Perhaps I simply caught a very rare glimpse of space debris cutting across our solar system. Regardless, I was thankful for living in a place where I might see such strange events. Surely the light pollution from the city would have made this object invisible to observers below the streetlights. What's out there? Some nights, lying in a sleeping bag, I count meteors, seek out constellations, and dream of the vastness of the space beyond our world. One evening I sat alone on a high rock outcropping and watched thunderstorms scores of miles away flashing over the plains. I looked up into the heavens, and I was suddenly presented with the illusion of falling off of the earth into space. It was so powerful that my hands quickly grabbed onto the rock on which I was seated. For a rare moment, it seemed that gravity had released me from its clutches. My heart beat wildly inside my chest, and I felt fear. The stars called to me. I would not go. I thought of my wife and children, and I shook my head to rid myself of the spell. It was too wonderful for me. Someday in another life, I will journey there. I will journey, and I will know. Now I see through a glass darkly. Someday I will see as if face to face. And yes, I will know. You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us, and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys. 
It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bent Gate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear so you can get your skis and your boots there as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. Chapter 6, Adventure Some may think that life at 8240 is an amazing adventure. At times it can be, but I also view 8240 as the gateway to adventure. We still live in a house, we do still have neighbors, we still buy our groceries in a supermarket, and I do still drive to the office each day to work. This life is different than that at lower elevations, but it too can begin to seem, well, routine maybe. Interestingly enough, if I were to choose where to go on vacation and I did not live here, this would be high on my list of places to visit. Periodically, I do use some vacation time simply to enjoy where we live. I take the family hiking or for a drive to a quaint mountain town for unique foods and shopping. My son Caleb is quite fond of visiting the reservoir or South Boulder Creek where throwing rocks into the water fascinates him for hours. Some days I simply sit in my warm house and watch the snow collecting on the pine boughs. But there's more. We can mountain bike, cross-country ski, alpine ski, toboggan, hike, rock climb, camp, fly fish, kayak, watch wildlife, or simply go exploring all here in our neighborhood. The weather is wonderful. The air is fresh. The views are astounding. This is a delightful place to visit. However, this is where we live. Vacations are about escaping the everyday, and as freeing as this place is, it is our everyday. So I enjoy taking the next step up from 8240 to the adventure of the high peaks. I go to the wilderness for backpacking, climbing peaks that rise over 14,000 feet tall, kayaking churning rapids, backcountry skiing, winter camping, anything that gets me outside to go higher, deeper, or farther. I see life in the woods at 8240 as living right on the edge of the big adventures. I'm convinced that a person could spend a lifetime in Colorado and never see or do it all. There are various ways to try. Some people go charging into the wilderness to bag high peaks. Others seek out the hundreds of rivers and creeks to kayak. There's the Colorado Trail that starts near Denver and ends in Durango. Hiking this trail is no small feat. One could attempt to ski every ski area in Colorado. There are dozens and dozens of them. Don't forget that there are at least 40 designated wilderness areas in Colorado where all mechanical access is forbidden. No cars, no bikes, no snowmobiles, no helicopters. People walk. They really walk through over 3 million acres of wilderness. 
If 3 million acres is not enough, there are also the National Forest Land and the BLM Land available for camping, hiking, climbing, or four-wheeling. Speaking of four-wheeling, early miners carved out hundreds of high mountain passes for narrow-gauge trains and wagons. These narrow-challenging roads are still open to one who's willing to risk an SUV to explore them. Many people prefer to stay on the pavement and find the small and exotic mountain towns enough to discover. Yes, there's enough adventure in Colorado to last a lifetime. Adventure serves another purpose. It reminds us that we are alive. Some are content to sit in a recliner and to watch those fools on television do all sorts of crazy stunts. I can't do that. Watching makes me thirsty. I have to go and drink. If I remain in the easy chair, I soon slip into a numb existence. Sure, my heart would still beat. I would still recognize time as it ticks past. But I need to interrupt the normal routines and to do something that will stand out in my mind. I have to break up the monotony with which life so easily blankets us. Eventually, that blanket will be pulled up over our eyes for the last time. Then what will matter? Will we be proud of our easy chair? I don't know who said it first, but it must be true. It's better to die living than to live dying. That's what adventure is about. A life well lived may be worth a thousand squandered. So I must seek out adventure. Is there some risk involved? Sure. Is it dangerous? We must exercise caution. Yet fear of danger or listening to the naysayers could really rob us of opportunities to experience life to the fullest, to have that life well lived. So I go. I go and I seek out the bigger adventures, the adventures that give life, well, perspective. North Maroon I find any activity that places me in the wild and leaves the traffic behind to be perfect. To do this, some people climb 14ers. These are the 54 to 58 high peaks in Colorado that break the 14,000-foot mark. As if climbing all these peaks were not enough, others attempt to climb the top 100 peaks in Colorado and soon find that many of the high 13ers are even more challenging. There are over 700 peaks in Colorado that break the 13,000-foot measure. Every peak is unique, too. I have climbed to over 13,000 feet on scores of mountains, and no two experiences were the same. When I moved to Colorado, I had a friend named Calvin who had been climbing the 14ers for years. His children were roughly my age, but they were not as interested in the peaks as their father. He wanted to climb each one and had done the easier ones first. Now we climbed the more challenging 14ers together. The routine involved getting up in the middle of the night, usually around 1 or 2 a.m. I would jump in my Bronco and drive to Calvin's house where we would load up his gear with whispers to avoid waking his sleeping family. Then we would drive deep into the Rockies in search of the pre-appointed peak. We hoped to arrive at the base of the mountains at daybreak, to hike to the summit before noon, and then be back off the top before the summer lightning storms began to release their fury. We climbed San Luis, North Maroon, Capitol, Quandry, and others together. San Luis was a beautiful hike, far from home, but not too difficult. Quandry is located near Breckenridge, not quite so far from Denver. It's an easier peak, but we climbed it on my birthday in February, which added a winter's challenge to the event. Capitol and North Maroon were both classics and quite challenging. These two peaks are located in wilderness areas, so driving to their bases is forbidden. To climb these peaks, it makes more sense to hike into the base the day before, and then to camp in the paradise of the wilderness. 
We hiked into the basin in front of the maroon bells in the evening. There were four of us together for this climb. Calvin and I were joined by two others that I will call Bob and Chuck. Bob was around 30 with sandy hair and a medium build. His long torso and broad, powerful hands gave him the look of a man raised on hard work and sinew. He was a friend of mine who had had a bumpy start in life. He was street savvy and somewhat explosive. High mountain climbs were new to him. Bob had a broad smile and loved to laugh, but his unpredictable side made some people a little uncomfortable. Chuck was from out of state. He was a man of adventure with a deep mind. Chuck had led groups on exotic overseas journeys. He enjoyed adventure sports and had a passion for his faith. His wiry frame was hardwired for action. In conversation, he spoke quickly in bursts with surprising sentence structures that were sometimes difficult to follow. He hiked similarly, in quick bursts that were sometimes difficult to follow. I had met Chuck before, but it was Calvin that knew him best. Calvin loved to share his sport with others, and it had taken him little effort to convince Chuck to agree to come along on the adventure. I enjoyed trying to unravel the mystery of Chuck's life. He had done many things in his years that were beyond the ordinary, and he seemed pleased to make others aware of his exploits. He had a lot to say and was not slow about saying it. He made it clear that he wanted to be understood as a man of adventure. We arrived at the trailhead, put on our packs, and headed into the snowmass wilderness as the sun began to set. There is a classic Colorado picture that seems to make its way into many nature calendars, brochures, and tourist films. The setting for this picture is that of looking across a long mountain lake lined by aspen and in which reflects two pyramid-shaped peaks dusted with fall snows. The twin peaks glow a reddish color under the snow and seem to be crossed horizontally by thousands of lines. These two peaks are, of course, the maroon bells in the elk range. The peak on the right in the picture was the peak that we were targeting this outing. We hiked past the first lake, aptly named Maroon Lake, and into the increasing darkness. I was wildly excited to be hiking into this basin. Having seen the maroons in so many photos had created a desire in me to experience them firsthand. I'd met a man on Long's Peak sometime before who was filming a documentary on technical climbs. We discussed Everest, Rainier, Long's, and the maroon bells while the camera was rolling. I don't believe I was told the man's name, and I never saw the documentary, but I do remember our conversation. He told me the danger of the bells was rotten rock. As it turns out, the horizontal lines going across the bells are rock shelves. Each shelf is piled high with loose boulders and stones. One begins to appreciate potential energy in a place like this. Rock slides are common, and people below beware. Overhead, an airplane circled low around the peaks. Pyramid Peak, to our left, seemed to be the focus. At the trailhead, a concerned stranger told us that a father and his young children were lost up there. The plane was searching for them. The thought of the dangers available on that peak for an unwary father with young children made me shiver. These mountains are my playground. I remember the injuries that the jungle gym inflicted on me in my youth, but this playground plays by different rules. What this playground inflicts? Well, there may be no consciousness left for memories. We kept our eyes peeled in hopes of seeing those who matched the descriptions, but that satisfaction never came. The small plane continued to circle until darkness drove it out of the peaks. We were disturbed by the potential tragedy that we were witnessing. I prefer to be at peace in the wilderness. Knowing 
that we had a challenging and beautiful climb ahead of us, adrenaline pumped through my veins, but what about those children? The trail was very rocky, and it was difficult to keep our footing in the dark while wearing heavy packs. Soon the nearly full moon rose over the trees, and the trail began to glow under its silvery light. Bob had a nervous edge to his voice in this setting. I wondered if I might too. I nearly trembled from the overdose of enthusiasm that I had for this trip and from the added concern that the plane created. It served as a reminder that in some way we were trespassing in a land that shows no mercy. This area's seductive beauty is laced with peril. After hiking for some while, we pitched our tents under some trees and tumbled into our sleeping bags. My mind raced with thoughts of the lost family, of worries about bears digging through my backpack, and of the next morning's climb. Every sound I heard jerked me fully awake. The ground was not comfortable. Where was the comfort I normally extracted from nature? This night, my imagination plucked at my nerve strands, playing a whirling song that would not allow rest. It was a long, slow night. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast and this bonus episode of 8240, One Family's Life Above the Clouds. We hope you guys enjoyed it and come back for another chapter. Please be sure to leave us a comment on our website at adventuresportspodcast.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Don't forget, you can also help to keep this show going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. A lot of work goes into this show. We can certainly use your help to keep the great interviews coming. Until the next time, get out and have some fun. Adventure Sports Podcast.